fourth chapter, so if this is your first time in a long time or your first time, um, we're glad you're here. You picked a good week to uh, come back. This is the uh, last week of the series. This is week 37. Woo! Yeah, we did it. All right. Can anyone here say for certain they have listened to other than Pastor Micah or been here for every sermon? Anybody? So we got one. Uh, so praise the Lord, there will be a prize waiting for you at the end of the service. Just see Pastor Micah. Um, he just found out about this. Um, it's probably going to be something signed by Brother Curtis. So, but, but I would I would encourage us all to go back and watch any we may have missed because I can speak for me personally. This has been a, a wonderful series and a, a truly a blessing. And I, I know the hours and hours that Pastor Micah put in uh, bringing a Christ-centered message each, each and every week. Uh, he did a lot of heavy lifting to prepare each week, and he could have skipped over some ser uh, ser uh, sermons, some verses. I'm sure he was tempted to skip some verses. I mean, nobody wants to talk about circumcision as much as Pastor Micah had to. All right, but he, he faithfully walked us through this entire book, and we get to the last week, and he calls me up. Like, he calls in the closer, right? Bring in the lefty. I love baseball. I love baseball a little bit more this year. How about those Braves, Dean? Right? I know you were loving it. <laughs> but Pastor Micah brings me in. The only problem is I'm like rich goose gassage. And if there's no baseball connoisseurs in here, he is known for blowing the most saves in MLB history. So that's who we got up here. But luckily, it's not about me. It is about Jesus. So before we jump into this, um, I'm going to give you a quick church history lesson. Um, I'm a history teacher, so why not? I'm also taking a church history class this semester, um, and it's about the worst class I've ever taken. Um, but got to get through it so I can get my MDiv. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Like, I really enjoyed writing a 10-page paper on a church father. Um, but one of the things I had to do was write a historical paper on a church figure. And I wrote on origin of Alexandria, not the origin of Alexandria, but the church father origin of Alexandria. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the wonderful details I learned about, about him, but know that this doxology that we're covering this morning uh, was under debate on whether it was originally part of the letter of Romans. Its original position is not only in question, but the, the way in which it was written is also in question. This dude named Harnock argued that, as it now stands, it represents an orthodox expansion of a shorter Marconianite doxology. That's just a subset of Christianity. So he actually argued that the doxology was expanded later to better represent the Marconianite view. Uh, Origen refuted that idea, though, and he says explicitly that the Marconian's edition of the letter liked the doxology with everything past um, Romans 14.23, so they're Book of Romans actually ended at chapter 14, verse 23. But in all, the doxology was concluded to be orthodox from the start. Um, it's actually based on um, some of the beginning of Romans 1, where Paul goes back uh, and kind of circles back on some things he talked about in Romans 1. Uh, so that's a fun little church history lesson for you. I never thought I'd actually use any of that stuff, but here we are. Uh, but So Paul is pretty much just circling back to what he said at the beginning of his letter, and he expanded upon it uh, during his letter. So um, I think we can all say here with some certainty that the Bible is the greatest book in all of history, right? And if you don't agree with that, just hold on. I'm going to try to convince you. Well, it's the greatest 66 books of all of history, 
All right, it's more of a library. But Romans is the greatest letter in the Bible um, talking about the greatest subject. And a lot of times talking about what is the greatest can be subjective. Like who is the greatest basketball player of all time? The younger generation is going to tell you it's LeBron James, baby Bron Bron, right? Or the people my age are going to tell you it's Michael Jordan because 6-0 and is better than 4-6, and six, okay? But it's really a generational thing because each, and, each generation just wants to think they're the best. That's really what it boils down to. Like who's the greatest quarterback of all time? And you'll get a bunch of different answers, but like Manning, Elway, Montana. I guess you can throw Brady in there even though he deflates footballs. Uh, Jaguar fans, some of them will still tell you it's Gardner Minshew. Um, or you can say the correct answer, Dan Marino, right? See, it's subjective, though, right? But some of these things are objective. Like, you can't argue them. They're just facts. Like, what is the greatest movie of all time? Well, it's Braveheart. You can't argue that. It's a fact, okay? Or what is the greatest Christmas movie of all time? It's Die Hard, all right? So you can't argue that. Christmas season cannot start until you watch Hans Gruber fall off the Nakatomi Plaza. That's just a fact, okay? So how do you wrap up the greatest letter in the greatest book? Well, by a doxology. And a doxology are just simply words of glory or words of praise. How else could Paul have ended it? If you have declared with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's where we're heading this morning. We're going to talk about just the awesomeness of God. See, one little skinny jean wearing man bun having I sip Starbucks pastor actually called his sermon the dopeness of God. And I was like, I don't, I don't wear skinny jeans. I don't like Starbucks. Uh, so we're going with the awesomeness of God this morning. And when a Christian gets to heaven, we're going to continuously forever, and to quote Pastor Chad Poe here for all my youth, forever, ever, forever, ever, Right? We are going for all eternity glorify God. We will give God praise for all eternity. It's going to be awesome because God is awesome. This is how we should live our lives. We should live our lives full of doxology. Lives that continuously give glory to God. Okay, so let's read Paul's doxology. It's only three verses. Um, if you're able and willing, please stand in reverence uh, for the reading of God's word. And the word of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we just humbly come before you, Lord, seeking to know you more, seeking your face. Lord, be glorified. Be glorified, Lord, because you're the only thing worth glorifying. May your will be done in and through this church and nothing more and nothing less, Lord. We love you, we need you, and we praise you. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to take this verse by verse, line by line. There's three verses, so we're going to have three truths. And the first truth is this. The gospel is the mystery revealed. The gospel is the mystery revealed, and that centers all on Jesus. The gospel simply means good news. You got the good news according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is that good news? That the Son of God stepped off his throne, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, 
willingly laid his life down for the transgressions of anyone who would believe in their hearts and declare with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He died, he rose, he got out of the tomb. The Bible actually says it was impossible for him to stay dead. He then ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will come back one day. That is the good news, church. And why did he do this? Why would he get off the throne to begin with? For our salvation, yes, that's part of it. But ultimately, it's for his own glory. See, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so let's look at verse 25 one more time. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now to him, not us. Now to him. Understand that God is for us. God is for each and every one of us if you declare him Savior and Lord. So God is for us who can be against us, but it's just not all about us. See, the Bible is not about us. It's about God. God's the main character of it all. God is the center of it all. All right. Y'all aren't used to this, so I'm going to see how y'all do with it. Audience participation time. Look to the person to your left. Tell them, the Bible is not about you. Okay, I'm going to tell y'all to do that again because that was half-hearted. Say, the Bible is not about you. Now tell them, Jesus is. All right, that, that was terrible. Y'all, y'all. All right, anyways, if you turn the Bible into nothing but taking the good verses and using them out of context, I got news for you, Scooter. You're welcome, Brother Robert. I got news for you, Scooter. You are not using the Bible correctly. Not everything is about you. See, we like to think that, though, don't we? are all like five little, or like five-year-olds, right? We're all like my Judah. Like, Judah thinks the world revolves around him, all right? If Blair and I are having a conversation and Judah's not a part of it, he is just going to say our names over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until we acknowledge him. He has nothing to say. He just doesn't want to not be the center of it. So he will just sit there and go, mom, 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 And then Blair will finally go, yes, Judah. And then he'll, I love you. That's it. Does it all the time. If Judah isn't the focal point, then Judah ain't happy. And that's why he has to get our attention. And sometimes we can act like that, can we not? But when it comes to the Bible, we cannot act like that. See, context matters. See, Jeremiah 29, 11, everybody's favorite Bible verse, not about you. Okay? David and Goliath, you're not David, to quote Pastor Matt Chandler. Your problems aren't Goliath. Don't dare to be Daniel. We have a better Daniel. Not what the Bible is about. If you insert any, insert any political event, and if you put yourself as the main character in the event, then you're not reading it with the correct biblical lens. Okay? Now look back at the verse. Now to him, not us, now to him, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, that stuck out to me. Why would Paul say my gospel instead of the gospel? And it came to me that until the gospel is personal, it has not penetrated your heart. Okay, You do not have to memorize all of Scripture to be a Christian. In fact, there's people in this world who have memorized Scripture who aren't Christian. Thomas Jefferson memorized Bible verses. Thomas Jefferson created his own version of the Bible. 
don't know if y'all realize that or not, but Thomas Jefferson has his own version of the Bible. He took out every miracle in Scripture. He did not believe in the virgin birth. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life. He did not walk on water. He did not turn water into wine. He did not heal the sick. He did not feed the 5,000. He did not heal the blind. He did not tell the lame man to get up and walk and take his mat. He did not believe he told Lazarus to rise out of the tomb. He did not clean, uh, cleanse the demon-possessed. He believed that Jesus died on the cross. He just didn't believe that Jesus stood on his, when he stood on his nail-pierced feet and said, it is finished. Well, he didn't believe it was actually finished. He believed that he died a sinner's death, but that his body was buried and it's still there today. He did not believe that Jesus arose three days later. He did not believe he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He did not believe he was coming again. But I got news for you, church. He found out. He found out. And do not find out like he found out. If you haven't surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus, ain't no time like the present. You do not have to pass a theological exam to being a Christian. It's a relationship with the God of heaven and earth, and he is the only way. All right, men like that who want to say that Jesus was just like this good moral teacher and nothing more. He wasn't the son of God. He was not the word incarnate. Who want to twist scripture to say what they wanted to say are going to find out one day. And I pray you do not find out like he found out. My prayer is that every person will come to see and our taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you haven't, I pray you will. See, the Bible, in the Bible, Jesus asked probably the most important question ever. And that's, who do you say I am? The most important question Jesus ever asked. The most important question you will ever have to answer is, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Lord and Savior over your life? See, Peter answered that question, and I don't know if you know a lot about Peter, but Peter loved to talk, and most time he was putting his foot in his mouth. But if you talk long enough, eventually you're going to say something that's correct. I'm an eighth grade teacher. I know that's right. Um, and when Jesus asked that question, Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus responded, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter actually got something right for once, and doesn't even get the credit for getting it right. Okay? And Jesus told Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. On this rock. Peter is not the rock. The rock is the gospel. And the church's foundation is the gospel. If you ever move or you go to a different church, and its foundation is not the gospel, you better find a different church. I don't care how many programs there are. I don't care how great the music is. I don't care how friendly the people are. It's a social club with some good music and fun activities. The church has to be grounded in the gospel. A.W. Tozer put it like this. What do you think about when you think about God? The best and only way to truly know who God is and to understand who he is is to pick up scripture and actually read it. Scripture is a gift from God. God gave us this so we can know who he is. That's the mystery revealed. People in the Old Testament did not know this. And that's the second truth. It's not only a mystery revealed, it's also a prophecy that has been fulfilled. See, so look at the next verse. But has now, 
been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Through the prophetic writings, the Old Testament, it all points to the events of the gospel. And the people way back when, right, had no real idea what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. Like when Adam and Eve ate from the tree to be like God, God told the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. People had no idea what that really meant. They knew someone was going to come who would defeat Satan. That's what they knew. They didn't know the who, what, when, how, why. Then, as the years passed, they received the temple system, the sacrificial system, uh, the shedding of blood on the Day of Atonement. God gives them a little bit more information as the years go on. They know that he will come through the line of Abraham and from the lineage of David. That, that is what makes the genealogy of Jesus so important. Okay? King David's going to write Psalm 22, and the Savior to come will be pierced for our transgressions, and they will divide up his garments. Then he will get to the prophets who wrote about the book, or then we get to the prophets who wrote about the uh, coming Messiah. And I'm going to throw a whole bunch of Bible at you, so be ready. It's on the, all the scriptures on there. So we got prophecy, and we have fulfillment. And just to show you, this is a small glimpse of how great our God is, how awesome is he. Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel Luke 1:35 The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so the holy one to be born will be called the son of God Another prophecy Hosea 11:1 1. When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son Matthew 2:14 through 15 Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here's another one. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The fulfillments in Matthew 2, 4 through 6. Um, for you will come a ruler who will be my shepherd over my people. Talking about Bethlehem. Then we have the prophecy from Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and he was held. Uh, and they held him in low esteem. Then the fulfillment is found in Luke 4.28 and 29. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which he, the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. Then you have Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And the Lord said to him, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. And the fulfillment is Matthew 27, 6 through 10. The chief priest picked up the coin and said, It is against the law to put into this the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's called the field of blood to this day. Last one, stay with me. Prophecy, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The fulfillment is Matthew eleven ten through 15. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, referring to John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he, meaning John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. You get the idea. 
The Old Testament all points us to Jesus, and he uh, is who he says he is. See, one scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to, describe, allude to, or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred uh, Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. Conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Not one other religion on the face of the earth can say that. Only Jesus has done that. How awesome is our God. See, Jesus completes the prophet's writings. He completes the law. Right? That is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, you see him with Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. He perfectly fulfills the entire Old Testament. And I was just reminded of the beautiful verse of 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57 that said, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have victory in Jesus' church. See, the prophetic writings pointed to that victory. They may have not known all the fine details, but if they had faith in God that he was going to do what he said he was going to do, they were saved by faith alone through Christ alone. That's exactly what the book of Romans is all about. Faith and glory. And we're going to talk about glory in just a little bit, but faith is all over the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8, faith alone in Christ alone. Chapters 9 through 11 cover God's faithfulness to keep his covenant with his people. Chapters 12 through 16 is that faith leads us to obedience and action. And a lot of times we can get that backwards. Faith produces obedience. Let's look back at verse 26. It ends with, to bring about the obedience of faith. That phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith, there are two places in all of scripture where that phrase is used. One of them's in Romans 16, the other one's in Romans 1. Okay? The gospel results in obedience, not the other way around. All right? Obedience does not produce more faith. Like if I just go to church more, I'll have more faith. That if I just go on another mission trip, I'll have more faith. See, you can insert whatever you want right there and say, I, have more, I will have more faith. That is not how this works. Obedience does not produce faith. Faith produces obedience. As your faith grows, you will follow God more and more and more, and you will want to do his will. The theological term is sanctification. As your faith in Jesus grows, you're going to want to become more and more like Jesus. In the holiness of God, R.C. Sproul wrote, true faith always produces real conformity to Christ. And when I read that, I went, ouch. I, don't, I can't speak for y'all because, but I know there have been times in my life where I've not led a life that was conforming to Jesus. If anything, I was moving further and further away from what Jesus was calling me to be. But praise God for his love, mercy, and patience with us. And if he can put a sinner like me up here to preach, I, I can only imagine what he can do for y'all. Um, you just got to put your yes on the table. If we claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I'm, I'm about to step on some toes here, and that's all right. If we claim Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, I got a question. When is the last time you personally have shared the gospel with someone? If it is our faith that produces obedience, should we not be sharing the gospel more often? 
the last thing Christ did before ascending to the right hand of the Father was to give his disciples the Great Commission. To go forth and make disciples and make disciples and make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. Are we telling people about who Jesus is? This is not a works-based faith. Faith. There is nothing we can do that can make Jesus love us any more or any less than he does right now. Even on our best day, Jesus loved us just as much as he, he did on our worst day. And we have an entire book of the Bible that tells us this, the book of James. Our works reveal that we have faith, but they do not give us faith. See, Jesus told the thief on the cross he's going to see him in paradise. And what did that thief do? He proclaimed that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior. That's what he did. He didn't do anything else. What could he do? He hung there and died. There's nothing he could do. We are not like the thief on the cross. We have the opportunity to be a part of kingdom work. What are we doing with this opportunity? It's like Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. A master gives his servants, three different servants. He gives one servant um, five talents. And a talent is about $1.4 million according to a quick Google search. And you can definitely trust everything you read on the internet. So that's at least what Abraham Lincoln told me. <laughs> All right. But anyways, it's worth a lot of money. And the master gives one servant five talents. He gives one servant uh, two talents. And he gives one servant one talent. The servant who got five brought back an additional five. The servant who got two brought back two. And the master tells those two, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. While God has not given us talents, he has gifted us with some sort of income, abilities, gifts, or personal talents. Are we using those things in such a way that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant? And I loved how he ended it with enter into the joy of your master. I can tell you, church, there is great joy when you are following and doing what the Lord has called you to do. But what about that other servant, the one that got the one? The other servant went out with his one talent and decided to bury it in his backyard. Now, there's no formal bank system back in this day, so that wasn't really a strange thing to do. Plenty of people did that. But when it was time to bring the money back, the master responded with righteous anger. He could have at least had Gentiles borrow the money, and he could have received interest on it. So the master takes the talent from him. And the parable ends this way, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, using one's God-given abilities wisely and productively is a vital aspect of discipleship. And we will be rewarded with more opportunities to serve God faithfully and fruitfully. And then it ends like this, And the cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a description of hell and eternal damnation. That phrase is used six times in the book of Matthew and once in the book of Luke. And hopefully this parable just shows us that we need to use our gifts, abilities, and talents to use you know, for the glory of God, to share the gospel. If this faith is the most important thing in your life, and, and church, I, it should be. I pray that it is. Why are we keeping it buried in our backyard and not telling people about who Jesus is. Because the mystery has been revealed. The prophetic writings have been fulfilled. So why did God do all this? For our salvation, yes. But most importantly, it's for the glory of God. So he could glorify himself. And that's the third truth. God gets the glory. This whole book is not about man's fall and redemption. 
It explains how a perfect, just God can be in right relationship with wicked, black-hearted sinners. And the only answer for that is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And why would he do this? For his own glory. In the book of Romans alone, 13 of the 16 chapters talks about the glory of God in some form or fashion. Just look at the last verse with me. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. To the only wise God. Now let's stop right there. There is only one wise God in the entire cosmos. And we as a human race can make up some really dumb gods. Can we not? Like we can turn money into a god. What a terrible god money is. We think money gives us security and that warm fuzzy feeling until a doctor's diagnosis um, comes about that we don't like. And that financial security is gone. We can have the nicest car in the parking lot, and one of y'all have the nicest car in the parking lot, but one day you're going to want a different car. And it's not because money is a dumb god. It's because we're dumb. Right? We are dumb. I mean, we can, if you don't come to church for 17 weeks because the Jacksonville Jaguars are playing football, that's a really dumb god. And they're really, really bad at football. <laughs> Think about that. We are supposed to live lives of doxology, and you cannot live a life of doxology outside of the church. We're to live lives that give God the glory. And what does glory even mean? Like, we kind of know about it, and we know it when we see it, but what is glory? I mean, we sing about it all the time, right? Like, for instance, the Georgia Bulldogs are doing, when they're doing really well on the football field, the marching band will play their team fight song, and it's called Glory, and I'm not singing it. But they say, glory, glory to old Georgia. They repeat that a bunch, and then they spell out Georgia because that's about the only way about 75% of their fans could even figure out how to spell Georgia correctly. And it's been 41 years since they've had a national championship, so I don't even know why they sing the song anymore, but, you know, they look pretty good this year. Lord willing, they choke. I love you, Pastor. That's right. Bruce Springsteen, oh, Florida's over there looking like a high school football team playing against Florida State. Bruce Springsteen sang about the glory days, right? And we have the classic Will Ferrell movie, Blades of Glory. If you've never seen that, don't waste your time. It's real dumb. But honor is about, our glory is about honor. It's about reverence. It's about high renown, the recognition one deserves. But when it comes to God getting the glory, it's so much more. See, Paul put it this way. I planted, Apollos watered, God made the growth. Another way we could put this is I did this. Paul, Pastor Micah did that. But ultimately, it was because of God. Whatever it is we do, it's because of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God gets the glory for everything we do. And we have so much to be thankful for as individuals. We have so much to be thankful for in our families. We have so much to be thankful for as a church family. Are we giving God the the appropriate glory for all that he has done and continues to do in our lives? Are we giving God the glory for all that he has done, is doing in this church? I don't know about you, but I want God to have the glory in it all. Right? There is an excitement around this church I haven't seen really ever. God is not finished with this church. This little church on Sago Avenue is doing some kingdom work, and God's getting the glory for it. See, I don't know about y'all, but 
Jesus did not die on Calvary because we're awesome. He did this so he could show the entire cosmos that he is awesome. And there is nothing in the entire cosmos like our God. See, the point of the entire book of Romans is that it's all about Jesus. We are justified through faith alone, by Christ alone. And because of that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, a part of what our salvation is, is it's essentially glory is restored to its rightful place. We place all of us in his righteous hands. And we say all of our lives is for your glory, God. And what starts to happen is our lives begin to reflect the glory of God. Look, being saved doesn't mean you just stop cussing, okay? It's a little bit more than that. That means we are made right with God and we give the glory to God forevermore. This is how the letter ends. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. So be it. It means we live a life that is no longer about exchanging the glory of God for our own way and will. But we surrender our way and will to the only wise, glorious king and finding life in that. I heard a pastor attempt to explain Romans in one sentence. And this is what he came up with. It says, God's sovereign purpose for all of creation is to glorify himself by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As he crushes Satan underneath our feet through the power of the gospel. Amen. That's the book of Romans. 37 weeks. And how does one wrap up the entire series on the book of Romans? With the only question that truly matters. Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced the saving power of his gospel in your life? The whole book screams that the reason he came is that we were desperately lost without him. So in love, he came to take your penalty. He is the propitiation for our sins, the payment that satisfies. There is no other way to heaven than through Jesus. But you have to receive him. You have to surrender and accept him for yourself. We have explored deep theological concepts and truths for the last 37 weeks now in and around soteriology, which is just the study of salvation. Here's the good news. You don't have to fully understand to fully believe. You don't have to have your life all in order to come to Jesus. All you need is to understand that I am lost and desperate without Jesus, but he loves me and has offered himself to me, and I say yes. Stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. And the altar's open. God, we glorify you. Lord, this church glorifies you. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you personally as Lord and Savior, Lord, let today be their day of salvation. Let them come to know you in a real and right way. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. May you have been glorified through it. Continue to work in this, your church, Lord. We love you. We need you. We praise you and we glorify you. Be with us. Amen.